Welcome back to the Reconnected Podcast. Gerald and I are joined today by Peter Savas, who's the CEO of Like Minds, which is a brain health company here in Boston, Massachusetts. And we're privileged to have him not only as a friend, but also as a, a neighbor mm-hmm. in our office here in Boston, which is really wonderful. And he's here today with, with his dog, Ollie, who is like the office mascot, which we're really happy to share. Mm-hmm. So welcome, Peter. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. We're so happy to have you, Peter. I was just having lunch in the office space and the gentlemen from Stemwave were just around and I mentioned that we're going to interview you and they both said the same thing. Oh, Peter's one of the my favorite human beings on this earth. <laughs> so we're happy to have you here. Well, thanks. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to be part of it. So Peter, uh, over the years that we've known each other, I feel so honored to get to have some really beautiful banter in the hallway or in between (laughs) sessions and as we catch each other in our busy days. And I've just been so struck by some of the stories that you've shared, not only about your own life, but also about some of the incredible adventures you've been on. And we wanted to have you here today because this season especially is about, you know, finding our own version of excellence in life and recognizing that that path might not always be a straight one or a typical one. And sometimes it takes a lot of trials, tribulations, challenges, and, you know, different stumbling blocks that often help us to get to where we are. And I think, I don't know many other people who have more incredible stories than yours. So (laughs) I'm looking forward to you sharing that with our audience today. So start us off, you know, you can go all the way back to the beginning if you want, but I think, you know, thinking about development and knowing that, you know, I teach a course on child development and Jerry and I are in the mental health world and the educational world. You know, thinking back to your childhood, I think that was definitely a foundation for where things started, obviously, but also a lot of um, gratitude and reflection for some of those points in your life that you experienced. Sure. Well, very true. So you're right, it does all begin with our, our childhood. <laughs> and I, I got to thinking a little bit about some of the stories, and and you're right, I think I have an endless list of these things. I think I've been very, very lucky. Um, but I was thinking about which which of these stories might have some relevance and might help some of the people that you work with. And uh, so one of the first ones that occurred to me um, happened when I was extremely young. I was, I think, 11 years old. And uh, my dad had died when I was little, so my brother, my sister, and I were being raised by a single mom who was a school teacher, mm. and we were always trying to please her because she worked so hard. And I remember one Friday night she was heading out to a parent-teacher conference, and on her way out the door she said that she was really, really upset with our kitchen and that the kitchen was so dated and, and just so awful and that she really wanted to have a new kitchen. And with that, she left the, left the house. And, and I looked at my brother and sister and said, well, I think we need to, mill, we need to make a new kitchen here. And, and uh, <laughs> the two of them, they, they were younger than I was, so of course I was the senior figure here. And, uh, <laughs> at the ripe age of 11. At the ripe age of 11. Yeah, yeah. And so what we did is we took all of the glasses and cups and saucers and dishes and everything and all the silverware, everything out of all the cabinets in the kitchen. And we, and we, after we emptied everything out, I went down to the basement and I found hammers and crowbars and stuff. And we proceeded to remove the entire kitchen. We took everything, <laughs> <laughs> everything out. And then the house was about, oh, I'd say 20 feet, 30 feet from the garage. And between the house and the garage was a patio. So we thought, well, what are we going to do with all this cabinetry that we totally destroyed, by the way? (laughs) So we took all the cabinetry and we dumped it all out on the patio. And we were tired. We (laughs) We were young kids. And so, of course, we all went to bed. And uh, I remember being asleep, sound asleep, and my mom coming into the room. And she shook me to wake me up a little bit. She said, Peter, I can't help but notice that my kitchen is gone. That, <laughs> that, that, that my cabinets are gone and that all of our stuff is all over the floor in the dining room. What happened? And I looked at her and I was still sleepy. And I said, well, you said you needed a new kitchen. And I thought, well, what, 
what more could we do than to build you a new kitchen? And so she said, really? And she said, do you know how to do this? <laughs> I said, <laughs> oh, yeah, I've got it all figured out. <laughs> she said, all right, we'll talk about it in the morning. And I, and I thought, now that I'm a lot older and I have my own kids, I'm not sure that I could have ever been so composed. But uh, the next morning we got up and she's making breakfast of sorts. We had nothing to eat on. And uh, she said, so about my kitchen, what are we going to do? And I said, well, I have to have a tool. And she said, what tool is that you need to build a kitchen? <laughs> 11 years old. And I said, what I need is a saber saw from Sears and Roebuck. I need a craftsman <laughs> saber saw. And she said, really? Anything else? I said, nope, that's it. And so she, we jumped in the car and she drove to Sears and we got the saber saw. And that really was the beginning of it. And we came back to the house and I, I drew a line on the floor with chalk because she was a school teacher. We had lots of chalk and I drew exactly what I wanted to do. And, and from there it kind of evolved into a, a project. But, but uh, she took me to the lumber yard and I bought the lumber and I did all the stuff. And then eventually... It took a while. It took me maybe as long as contractors under COVID, but um, <laughs> but I was able to get it done. And uh, and the kitchen actually was there until about 10 years ago and finally got ripped out. But anyway, so that was kind of the story of the kitchen. But the lesson in all of this, I think for me as a kid, was <clears throat> my mom always encouraged me to take, to, to try things. And, uh, you know, I think that, that for me, I was fearless. It was just no harm, no foul. And and at the same time, what was remarkable was her composure through all of this. Why she didn't explode. I think if I came home and, and I found my kitchen on the in, in the backyard. Totally disassembled. I'm not, yeah, I'm not so sure that I would have been able to be that calm and, and collected about the whole thing. But that that to me was a marvelous, 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 marvelous way to handle me and certainly encouraged me to try more things. Talk about a foundation it, from what I've learned about you over the years of knowing you is that you're really good about seeing the big picture, seeing something you think is possible, figuring out how to break it apart, breaking it down, and then build it back up again. Mm. It's so amazing. And it, it started back when you were 11 years old. And, you know, I, I work with a lot of younger learners, as you know, sometimes that they might have these big ideas but they don't always fit into the learning environments that they're working within or the homes that they're in. And they sometimes get shut down for thinking big and thinking mm -hmm. creatively. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what a different path maybe you would have ended up on if your mom had said, you know, what are you doing? You can't do this. Right. So Peter, uh, that's an incredible story. And um, the grace that your mom had is incredible. And um, we've had guests on this podcast uh, this season. There's always this theme of uh, compassionate and strong, caring women uh, as mother figures. And like, it's kind of strange, actually, Alex, how that's happened. Um, the people that we have gotten to know over the years that have been on the podcast this season have had that. Um, something that stands out to me, though, how did you know what a saber saw is? <laughs> And there, I don't think there was YouTube back then. <laughs> there wasn't YouTube. Well, the reason I knew about a saber saw is that one of my friend's dads had a workshop and he had all these really cool tools. And the, the one that fascinated me the most was a saber saw. And so that was the only reason I knew what it was. Otherwise, I would have had no clue. <laughs> but I will tell you, I was so excited to go to Sears and get one. This was like a dream come true for me. So I can't believe your, your mom went and got it for you. Exactly. It's amazing. Yep. So when you were doing that, was it like, it, I'm feeling this sense of like joy and purpose and like energy, not really any fear, guilt or shame attached to it. And we talked to other, you know, we talked to a very elite athlete about like when she was younger, she felt that way when she was growing up, when she was doing her sport. And I'm just wondering, like, what what was what did that feel like to just dive into something? And and do you also sometimes feel that way now as you're older? That same type of feeling where you're like, I'm just going to go do this. There's no you know fear, guilt, or shame attached to it. I'm just going to jump into it. Well, funny you bring that up. So so you're right. It was euphoric. It was really empowering to me. I think the trust that was expressed by my mom that said, "Okay, go ahead and do it." And I think that as I dial back now in time. 
to all of the different things that she did over the years to encourage me to take risk was unbelievable, mm-hmm. just phenomenal. And I and, and at one point I asked her, I said, so looking back at our life, what were the things you think about? Because I did some really, really crazy stuff. And she said, well, I made a decision. Uh, what I thought about was whether or not you could hurt yourself or hurt somebody else. And if mm-hmm. I was pretty concerned, mm-hmm. then I wouldn't let you do it. But if I really was confident that there's a pretty good chance you weren't going to get hurt and you weren't going to hurt anybody else, she said, what better way to learn? That's amazing. Yeah. What a great message. She was. Yeah. She was. I love that. And, and another part of that story I love, Peter, is that you did it in honor of your mom who, like, you know, you felt like sacrificed a lot for you. Um, what a beautiful thing. Like, your intentions were very pure and good, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, very true. I think my brother and my sister and I really, really did understand it back then what it was like for her to do this by herself because all of our mm-hmm. friends had moms and dads. And and we had a mom, and then somehow she made, I don't know how she did it, but she made it all happen. It was pretty remarkable, and we did appreciate it. We did understand it. Wow. Used to show up every day to teach other children, too. What a, what a beautiful person. Very true. Yeah. Very true. It's amazing. And, and um, I was laughing to myself a little as you were telling the story that your mom wanted something and you're like yeah she doesn't ask for anything we're gonna make this happen yeah i joke all the time the people that are closest to me know this about me that you got to be careful what you wish for or say you want in front of me too right because it usually just happens (laughs) yeah you guys have good hearts um so so tell us a little bit about um kind of moving forward you mentioned a few stories earlier before we came on the show about um just influential mentors in your life and people uh starting early on can you talk a little bit about that Sure. Um, so I, as as often happens, I think young boys who don't have a dad, I think we actually get pretty frustrated. Mm-hmm. And so, and I know there's lots of kids that are dealing with that situation. And, and I think what it led me to be was grumpy a lot of the time because all of my friends had their dads at their sports events and other kinds of things, and I didn't have one. And my mom <clears throat> thought, well, what am I going to do about this? And and what she wound up doing was sending me off to a boarding school. And uh, this was for high school. And so, and I was a pretty good football player, a pretty good swimmer and, and whatnot, pretty good athlete. And so the school accepted me, and uh, my grades were good, my sports were good, but my attitude wasn't very good. That was a problem. And I think a lot of that stems from having grown up without a father. And uh, (laughs) it was so bad, however, that for my first year at the school, I had to prove that I could control myself. And I was actually required to live with the chaplain, the minister. (laughs) I wasn't allowed to live in a dormitory with everybody else. Um, and, and, and it turns out that I went in a little bit early for preseason football and there was this remarkable football coach. And, and I think we don't often quite have this kind of luck, but the coach that was there at the time, uh, watched me play and he watched for the first two weeks before the season began. And after about two weeks of it, he pulled me aside and he was very calm and very balanced. And he said, Savas, I said, yes, sir. (laughs) He said, you're nowhere near as good as you think you are. Hmm. And that was not the way I thought this was going to start. And he said, are you any good at math? I said, yes, I am. And he said, how many people on the field? I said, 22. How many on offense? I said, 11. He said, very good. Nice job no place for you on offense. And I thought, oh no. (laughs) And he said, so there's how many positions left again? I said, 11. He said, you're big, but you're not big enough to be on the line. There's five of those guys. How many positions are left? And I said, six. He said, you're bigger than the three guys in the back, but you're slow. We need people back there who are kind of fast. So I can't see any role for you in the back. And I was pretty discouraged. And he said, so how many are left? I said, three. And he said, outside linebackers have to chase down receivers. And by the way, I think you're slow. So how many positions are left? And I said, one. 
And he said, if you're willing to get really good at that job, and if you trust my judgment and you trust me, he said, I'm suggesting that's the right role for you, that's the right set of responsibilities for you, then you're going to get to play and you'll do well. And he said, if you don't agree with me and you don't want to take my advice as your coach, you're going to sit on that bench for the next four years. And I listened. I paid attention. That's very true. And, and so that turned out to be the first experience I had with a coach. And I think it's so important that when we play sports that we listen very carefully. And these coaches really do know what they're talking about. But that helped me learn how to value the coach, but not only from a sports point of view, but in every other aspect, particularly when I got into work. So that was just one of those life lessons from school. Wow, that's unbelievable that he cared enough to want to set you up for success. Yep. And took the time to figure that out. That's, yep. <clears throat> and to give you the choice to make and to empower you to choose that, to choose your path. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, I was actually thinking too that how, what a great example that is to share, not to just say this is your position this is what you're going to do, but why he thinks that's the position for you and kind of like what you need to do to succeed. Being so explicit is yeah. so important. Yeah. And that probably paved a better path for you to be able to practice and to push yourself and to fit that role yeah. that maybe you already had inside of you. You probably were naturally doing, but now you are honing your craft to be even better. Right. Very true. What did that feel like for you? Well, uh, well, to be honest, at first I was a little disappointed because I think I saw myself playing maybe some other positions. Mm. Um, but then what I did realize was that if I focused on that one position and I, and I focused on being really, really good at that one position, it would play out. And as it turns out that I was also a swimmer and it turns out there are four basic strokes and it turns out that as I thought about the four strokes, the one stroke that I was really good at was the breaststroke. Mm -hmm. The other three strokes, not so good. And so I took the lesson I learned in football in the fall and in the winter for the uh, swimming season, I focused on the breaststroke. And I got really good at the breaststroke in deference to the other three strokes. And, and again, that helped me both in, in high school and college. So again, it's a question of focus. And then in the spring, it comes back again because it turns out in spring sports, <laughs> I think as we heard a minute ago, I was not very fast. So my <laughs> my prospects, the, the prospects for being part of the track team were pretty limited. That was not going to happen. And uh, my, you were no road runner. <laughs> no, I really wasn't. So track wasn't going to be my sport, and I wasn't particularly good at baseball. And uh, and very lucky for me, the school decided to to put in place a crew team, a crew sport rowing. And I was pretty good size and I was pretty strong. And so rowing is something that, you know, it's not too hard to do. It's hard to do it well, but it's not too hard to do. And so I wound up rowing crew for the boarding school. And then I went on to row crew in college and play a little bit of football. I want to I double back on that for a second because... First of all, we're going to go down the crew road in a moment, but I I also want to just focus in on how you recognized your strengths and your areas that probably weren't as strong or as developed as others. And I think today I see a lot, at least, of, of young people who have talents and interests that are so broad and wide and they want to do everything. They want to do everything as perfectly and well as possible. And they spread themselves really thin. And sometimes parents, for better or for worse, will kind of like push them to get the training, the coaches, the clinics or whatever it is to help them to be the best that they could, which is a wonderful thing. But I also think there's there's such benefit to what you were saying, you know, recognizing what you're good at, recognizing what you enjoy, recognizing what brings you that peace and focus. Because if you you don't have great skills, it's hard to focus in. And I see that so often that, you know, when you're not really great at something, that's often where people get dysregulated or frustrated mm. or unfocused versus just, you know, turning it on and off, which is not actually the case in our human brains to be right. able to do that at, at this stage of life, at least. So I think there's just so much value in what you said about, you know, finding what you're good at, honing your craft and focusing in, not trying to do everything. 
or trying to do the things you choose to do really well. Very true. I, I, and it's also, I think, learning to be happy about doing what you're good at. Mm. It's not having all of this, gosh, I wish, I wish, I wish stuff. Mm-hmm. It's about, okay, this is what seems to work for me. So whether it's pulling on an oar or, or the, the particular swimming routine that I would like to do, uh, it was taking satisfaction in that. It was actually enjoying it. And, and sometimes that takes a little bit of effort. Yeah. Not saying, gosh, I wish I could do this and wasting a whole lot of time. Yeah. Jerry and I talk about this so often for ourselves and also for our clients that sometimes when we have a sense of gratitude for the opportunities we have and natural abilities to being able to put those pieces together is such an amazing privilege and opportunity. And when when people or ourselves can kind of do that and do it with purpose instead of just doing it because you think you have to or because you're comparing yourself to somebody else that it transcends the experience. It makes it something that's so valuable and meaningful and often transcendent in somebody's life. Yeah. Well, it certainly played all the way through college and then led to, you know, graduating. And then now what do you do, right? But Yeah. Well, we'll come back to that. I want to go back to crew because yeah. uh, Gerald doesn't really say much about this, but he was also on the crew team at USD. And I don't know, do you mind quickly sharing how you found crew? Because it, was, it wasn't because you were like, oh, I want to be a rower. Because we didn't really grow up when we were younger in New Jersey with rowing as a thing. We didn't really know much about it. I don't know how much I want to say about this because I was on the team for three quarters of the season <laughs> until I, I couldn't breathe. And I always thought I was just out of shape, but it turns out uh, years later, I found out that I have number one, sports-induced asthma, and number two, a nasal valve, nasal valve collapse, meaning I don't, I don't get air through my nose. So I really wonder how good of an athlete I could have been if I had more air coming through my nose. Yeah, I got it. Uh, but, um, you know, the thing I want to say to you about uh, to what Peter's bringing up to is uh, the adaptability and to be resilient. I think you have to be adaptable. And it's not an easy process, like you said. Right. Sometimes it takes a lot of acceptance. Acceptance is one of the hardest things to do in life. Um, you know, probably you probably know that better than anybody. You know, losing your father. Acceptance is one of the hardest things to do in life. But sometimes it is the answer that we need to be able to adapt and to continue forward. So, um, just want to point that out. And uh, you know, if you want to share more about that, or even just you know how you continued that path in college about adapting, because you had mentioned something about your professor saying something to you. That really kind of shifted your gears a little bit. Yeah. So, uh, well, it's just I didn't realize that you had asthma. So, I oddly enough, I had asthma as a kid, and when I went off to boarding school, it literally went away. Hmm. No reason why. Nobody understood why. But prior to going to that school, I would wind up with these asthma attacks, and for some reason. The last one I had, I think, was when I was 13 years old. I never had another one. And it was it was just this f- phenomenon that we didn't understand is why did it go away, which was really great because it, it opened up all the doors for sports. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. but, I, but I will tell you that because of the asthma, I spent a lot of time at the doctors. And that led me to believe that what I wanted to do when I grew, grew up, I, was, I wanted to be a scientist because mm-hmm. I, I thought being a doctor, you just treat one person at a time. If I could be a scientist, I could come up with products that would treat millions of people. And that seemed to me to be more important than one at a time. So I wanted to be a scientist. That was exactly what I was going to do. <clears throat> so when I went to Syracuse, I studied chemistry, but I also studied business just because why not? <laughs> and um, as it turns out, as I sort of trudged through my university experience between the sports and the, and the studies, um, there was a teacher who stood out in my mind that was phenomenal in the business school. And his name was Stanley Seimer. And he wrote this marvelous book about uh, organization and management. And I loved his class, and I spent a lot of time talking to this guy off off campus. We'd just sit and chat about it. And finally, one day, he said, well, 
He said, I don't ever think you're going to be much of a chemist. <laughs> mm. He said, I just don't know that that's really the right gig for you. He said, you seem to be really in love with organization and management concepts, and you might want to think about that. Well, that stuck in the back of my brain. But that having been said, when I wrapped up my work at Syracuse, I went to work for Bristol-Myers. And Bristol-Myers, of course, I went to work in research and thought I was going to push back the frontiers of science, which, of course, I didn't at the time. <laughs> but um, but there's a story about that first job at Bristol-Myers that I think is pretty remarkable because it was a lesson to me about what it means to have a great boss and to be a great boss. I can tell that if you'd like. It's probably one of my favorite stories of all time that I've ever heard. Okay. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> all right. So, so I had this absolutely wonderful boss. He was terrific. His name was Dalton. And uh, he, for, for whatever reason, took a liking to me. And I started with him in the, um, right after school. So I guess it would have been in the June time frame. And what year and, was this? Oh, I don't know. I don't want to date myself, but <laughs> I think the ice, I don't age, mean to. The, the ice age was over. Okay, but, okay. But That's anyway, <laughs> um, but I started around the June time frame and I worked like a maniac because that's all I knew how to do was just work. So I worked and worked and worked and worked and worked until March, about nine months later. And I had a girlfriend and my girlfriend and I decided that what we wanted to do was to go see the United States, all as much of it as possible on a motorcycle. And so I walked into Dalton's office and told him that I was going to have to go to see the United States. And he said, this is something you have to do. I said, yeah. Why are you doing that? And I said, well, because my girlfriend and I want to do it. And he kind of talked you out of it. I said, nope. He said, can you tell me when you want to leave? I said, yep, we're going to leave on June 1st. And he said, uh-huh. And when are you going to come back? I said, we're going to come back on September 30th. And he said, you're going to be gone for four months. I said, yep. <laughs> and he said, well, you sure you need to do this? I said, yeah, I'm positive. He said, I can't promise that there'll be a job for you when you get back. I said, well, I understand that, but this is something we have to do. And so I went to New York. I got this motorcycle and, and I brought it back up to Syracuse, which is where I was working at Bristol. And my boss asked if I needed anything. And I said, yeah, I would love to have this uh, stainless steel thing put on the back of the motorcycle so that I could strap my stuff to it and so that my girlfriend could have some straps so she wasn't fall, wouldn't fall off the back of it, wasn't likely to fall off. And he had the machine shop do all that for me oh at, at Bristol. And so sure enough, June 1st rolled around and, and off we went. And we did the northern states and down the west coast and we did the southern states. And uh, by the end of September, we were back, and I and I went back into Bristol Myers on September thirtieth or thereabouts, and um, and I walked into my boss's office, into Dalton's office, and uh, as I walked in the door, I gave him a little wave, and he said, "How are you?" I said, "I'm good," and he said, "How was your trip?" I told him, and he asked he asked a lot of questions, like he was interested. And at the end of the whole thing, he said, "Well," he said, "Would you would you want your job back?" I said, "Sure." And he said, really? I said, yeah. And he said, do you remember your locker number? I said, yep. Do you remember the combination to your locker? Yep. He said, go to your locker, put your lab coat on, and get back to work. So I thought, wow, this is great. So I did. I went to my locker, I opened my locker, and in the bottom of my locker was a shoebox. And I thought, I don't remember leaving a shoebox in my locker. <laughs> <laughs> so I took the shoebox out and I opened it up and there in the shoebox were my pay envelopes for every week I was gone. Unbelievable. And, and, and I, had, I had no idea. So I thought, hmm. So I closed the shoebox, I closed the locker and I walked down to my boss's office and I, I, I said, I found a shoebox in my locker. He said, yeah, I know. And I said, there's pay envelopes in that box for every week that I was gone. And he said, yeah, I know. I said, I don't get it. And he said, well, if I had told headquarters you weren't here, I wouldn't be able to hire you back. And I really wanted you back. And I said, wow, that was a mind-blowing moment. That was, for me, incredible that he would have done mm -hmm. that for me. Mm -hmm. 
And of course, I was thrilled, but I felt guilty. And I said, well, I feel terrible. I said, I, I never earned that money. And he looked at me and he smiled and he said, well, you're gonna. <laughs> 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 uh, so suffice to say, I didn't ask for overtime for quite a while. But anyway, can, <laughs> but can you imagine, you know, here I am in my early 20s to have somebody do something like that for you and set that sort of example. But there's actually something I may not have told you. <clears throat> and that is that about 10 years ago, I got to thinking to myself, I wonder whatever happened to my boss. And um, and so I hired a private detective to track him down. And the detective found that he had passed away, but his wife was still alive and his four mm-hmm. children were still alive. And we actually put together a conference call so I could tell his uh, family what he had done. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. That is special. Incredible. Fun. That was great fun. Yeah, that was very cool. But, you know, all, all good things kind of came to an end. So what happened was I loved working for this guy, but it really was clear that I was not going to be a, a scientist. This was not happening. So I, I, I mentioned that to him, and out of the blue, a little company not, side, not, not far from Boston uh, had reached out to me and asked me if I would consider coming and interviewing with them. So I thought, well, I might think about it. And they were looking for a sales rep. And I thought, I'm a scientist. I can't be a, I'm actually listed as a senior scientist, even though I was like 22 years old. (laughs) And, but I I thought, well, I go look into it. And I decided I wanted to try it. So I I went back to my boss and told him I was going to take a cut in pay to go work as a sales rep. And, And he said, and this is the same guy, and he said, I understand. He said, I think you should chase your dream. I will give you a one-year leave of absence. Hmm. So he said that uh, if you if you come back in 364 days, you can have your job back. If not, that's it. So I I did leave. I did go to be a sales rep, and that changed my life. That's what got me out of the laboratory into the business side of things. I feel like I'm doing all the talking here. Do you? <laughs> I, I have a question. Sure. Um, yeah. My job is to ask questions every day, so I have a question for you. Yeah. You, um, you must have impressed something upon that gentleman that uh, wanted to keep you in his uh, workplace. What was that? What did he admire or respect or value in you uh, working for him that led him to feel that way and act that way towards you, do you think? Oh, I think, I think maybe first and foremost, work ethic. That was something that was taught to me by my mom. It was about... You know, you're not done until you're done. Mm. And so I was very deliberate about <clears throat> if I made a promise to do something that I would get it done. I think that I got along with everybody. So I think that was something that I, that I learned from my mom, but I also learned it in sports that um, um, I never got into brouhaha's with other people. I could always seem to find a way to get along with folks. And I, so I think being collaborative was always important. Um, I was always, I think, in some ways, happy. I mean, I, and generally speaking, I mean, these are days before cell phones and all that kind of stuff, but I was generally always in a pretty good mood about things. I, I just didn't wake up in a crabby, grumpy mood, and I didn't take that kind of stuff to work with me, so maybe that was part of it. Um, yeah. What do you think was the shift from going from the grumpy kid when you were younger to somebody who showed up for work feeling happy and wanting to bring other people into that web that you were creating to collaborate? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, That's a really good question. I, I think it was just, I was very lucky. I think I just, I just met some really unbelievable people and, um, and I think, I think, a large part of this is maybe another thing I learned from my mom is that, you know, we're not entitled to anything. Mm. And I think taking the time to earn mm. the respect of these people, understanding what they could do for you, but 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 learning to be part of the the overall picture with folks in a way that makes everybody feel good was important. So for me, um, yeah, that was kind of the key. You know, I see this so much that, Um, 
young people especially who have relationships with adults where the adults respect, encourage, and are authentically there for them. Mm-hmm. That the young people tend to want to show up and do more and do better when they have that relationship. And it sounds like going back to the way your mom was raising you and your brother and sister that, you know, she she respected you and your curiosity and helping you to not only just grow up and be who you were, but really to embody who you were. And it sounds like you had a similar respect for her where you both were nurturing and supporting, but also respecting. And it's an interesting combination and interaction that I think is so important that a lot of adults, especially in this world where everybody's so anxious about things and worried that they feel like they need to control a situation or a person or an interaction, that I think a lot gets missed in just kind of like allowing for something to unfold with mutual mm-hmm. respect, support, and encouragement, which it sounds like there are so many opportunities for you to have people in your life to do this. Right. I think there really are. I think that it's a mindset. Mm. I, I really do. I think that you, it, I think what, what our mom did really well was to program us to think that way. Mm-hmm. And I think that I, I remember a lot of the young people, the people that I grew up with, that's not how they were raised. Mm-hmm. And I think um, she was kind of a special, special woman, actually. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. I mean, you know, when you think about love and respect, you know, you give it, you, you get it. And like, that's what makes the world go around. You know, I found in my life, like, you know, if you really have respect both ways. People want to help. Right. I, maybe not everybody, you know, some people, just they don't have it in them. But like, people really want to help someone that they respect. And, you know, I feel that way now, too, you know, even in supervising students. Um, we interviewed again the the the, uh, the hockey player, one of the best hockey teams in the country, and she said this very bluntly: "We respect the coach, and the coach respects us, and we both want to uphold that responsibility of respect, and that's a big part of the success of the team." Yep. Yeah. Well, it's all part of it. It really is, and I think that the lessons that we learn in sports from uh, appreciating our teammates. And, and 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 appreciating what their unique skills are and 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 whatnot is so critical, and it all applies to work. But I think I think it really um, it's contagious, and someone has to spark it. Mm. You know, I don't think it's something that just happens out of the blue. And you know, it sounds like your mom in some way started it. You brought it on, and people in your life. You know, I I think it's a leadership thing in a lot of ways. Like to be a leader is you got to do that for people. And to step up and do it. And then you hope that someone else takes that torch and carries it forward. Because mm-hmm. what else do we have in this life other than to have leadership like that, you know, and hope right. someone continues it? I think it's a, an incredible thing that could happen. And it's great to hear that story from you. Sure. So I think also with that aspect of leadership, I think there's, you know, there's training programs and motivational speakers and masters in leadership and whatever you can pursue or pay for. But I think, you know, to your point, really understanding and learning what leadership is and how to show up is something that really comes from within and an appreciation from the opportunity and, and, you know, as challenging as it must have been to grow up grieving the loss of your father, which I don't think ever really goes away across a lifetime. I think there's always that, that sense of of loss, but I think it's also probably instilled in you um, an appreciation for the opportunities that you have, that when you show up, you really show up and take advantage of it. Right. So there's, um, I was thinking about other stories that might be fun Mm -hmm. for your listeners that sort of follow on to that theme. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think I mentioned that I left Bristol Myers to go work for this little company. Right, right. And outside and, of Boston. Yeah, outside of Boston. And there's a there's there's something very cool that happened. And I think um, a large part of this there was a, there was I don't know. Are you familiar with the little engine that could? Mm-hmm. That was my mom's favorite mm-hmm. thing to talk about. Was the little engine that could? And uh, I remember when I went to join this this little company just outside of Boston, and they had the uh, 
as this was a sales position, and they asked me, they said, well, we have lots of open territories. And I said, well, okay. And they said, which one would you like? And they named all the different geographically. And I said, well, I'd actually like to take over the worst performing territory that you have. <laughs> and they said, really? I said, yeah. And they had five divisions. And I said, so I would like to take the worst performing territory in the worst performing division. And the guy that ran the whole thing said, why? I said, well, because it's a lot easier to show an improvement over something that's doing terrible mm -hmm. than it is take something that's doing well and make it just a little incrementally better. Mm -hmm. And so um, they, they've made my wish come true. They gave me the Washington, D.C. territories, Washington, Maryland, Virginia, and North Carolina. And um, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> But, but I understood the technology that they had to sell. And I put together a plan. This would be for another session. But turns out, 14 months after I started, the territory went from the poorest performing territory to the best performing territory in the wow. company. And uh, they were all excited. And it turns out that they were looking for a sales manager for the poorest performing division. Now, here I was maybe 24 25 something like this and they and i said well why don't you give me the job and i mean most people wouldn't have done that and they looked at me like what are you, are you stupid <laughs> you're in your mid-20s and you've been in this sales position for a year i said well why not and they said well i said never mind i'll be back so i i was visiting the, the office was up here in boston so i was visiting i was staying at a hotel and this was before computers. So I went back to my hotel room with a pad of paper and a pencil, and I stayed up all night. I went, I went back and, and, and wrote what I would do if I was the sales manager for this division. And I wrote up this entire plan, and I finished it at 6 in the morning. I took a shower, and I went back to the office. And I put this thing on my boss's desk, and I said, so this is why I think you should make me the head of the whole thing. It didn't take me a month to write a business plan. Mm. It took me 12 hours. <laughs> and I wrote this plan, and, and my boss looked at me, and he said, I'll read it and get back to you. I said, <laughs> well, I'm going to be leaving in like a day or two. And he said, no, he said, I'll do it now. So next thing you know, uh, he, he walked into my cubicle. I was sitting out in the cubicle, and he said, interesting what you've written. I said, yep, so do I get the job? He said, well, okay. I think you should go talk to the head of marketing. All right. So I walked down to the head of marketing's office, knock, 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 went in the door, and uh, he had a copy of what I had written, and he asked me a bunch of questions. And that went for a while, and I said, so do I get the job or not? And he said, well, we think you need to go talk to the CEO. <laughs> Oof. I said, okay. So fearless. So I went down the hall and walked in the CEO's office and he had a copy of what I had written. And Xerox machines did exist then. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> and um, and we got to talking for a little while and he said, well, I don't know. I said, well, what? And he said, well, I think you ought to go talk to the chairman of the board. And I thought, good Lord. So I went down to the chairman's office, walked into his office, and he had a copy of this thing, and we talked for a little while. And he said, this is all great. He said, but the, the guy who's your current boss is the decision maker. The position is going to report to him, so why don't you go talk to him? So I went back, and I couldn't find him. And I looked, and I looked, and I couldn't find him. But then I thought I had a rent-a-car. So I went to find the keys to my rent-a-car so I could head back to Washington, and I couldn't find them. Well, it turns out he had the keys. And he threw them at me and he said, you got the job. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it. I had the job, but, but I panicked because as I got on the plane, I thought to myself, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I have like no idea. On the other hand, I didn't know how to be a sales rep either, but that had worked. Mm. And so I decided I was an unconscious competent and that what I needed was to, to understand what I had done right that worked that I, so that I could teach the people that were going to be reporting to me. I had about a dozen direct reports. And so I actually went 
to figure out who teaches courses on how to manage people and, and salespeople and that sort of thing. And I, I took a course offered by Xerox, one offered by IBM, and one offered by Wilson Learning. And it, I settled in on the one by Wilson Learning, and mm. they had a couple programs. And I wound up taking the sales force that I took over and got all of them trained on that course. And a year later, we went from being the poorest performing division to the number one division. And at that point, they asked me if I would take over North American business operations. <laughs> and then a year later, they put me in charge of worldwide business operations. And this is all in your 20s? Yes. Wow. All in my 20s. And it was all thanks to these really unbelievably encouraging people. But it was also just having confidence in yourself. Right. Also learning to ask questions and to listen and, and establishing, as you pointed out before, the right culture. Yeah. That, that's important. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Lex, but you just said something so important because when you in, enter into uncertainty and you don't know what you're doing, as you said, you are very resourceful. And I think that's a great lesson for the listeners and the young people we work with is you, you can be afraid and still use your resources. And a resource could be asking a question. You just said that yourself. Sure. I had to ask good questions to figure out what to do. Not be afraid to ask questions. Right. We work with a lot of people who are so perfectionistic, they're afraid to ask for help, yeah. afraid to ask questions, afraid to admit something they don't know or to figure it out. And I think you're a great example of that to to navigate that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's yeah, I think you're right, Jerry. I think that, um, it, but I think if I was to look back on my career um, through today, the thing that I'm most happy about or most proud about is, are the people that I've I've mm. found. And, and I've found some incredible folks. And what I've learned is that I did figure out very quickly that I actually report to them. Mm. <laughs> that that how I live my life when I all these years that I was running businesses um, was that I would wake up and think about what are the three things I could do to help this guy do better mm. Mm -hmm. or that woman do better, whatever it happened to be. And so it was it really was a lot of work making sure you had the right person doing the right job with the right roles and responsibilities the right way at the right time. And um and I think that's such a fundamentally key part of being a, a leader is is really to take that role as serious as possible to be one of a teacher and to be a coach and to be a mentor. So all the people who had coached me, well, now the shoe's on the other foot. And now it's my job to coach these folks and to figure out, uh, you know, what are, what are the things that I could do to help this person overachieve? And the thrill for me to see somebody from one of my operations stand up and get an award was the best feeling in the whole wide world. I didn't need to get imagine. any awards, but it was to see people that, that I had, you know, either, you know, found or helped develop, uh, accomplish great things. That's a real thrill. It's the best part about yeah. working with and helping others. It really is. It's, it's just totally thrilling. Yeah. And it's so interesting, Jerry, I guess, <laughs> None of this was really intentional, but I guess it comes down to the theme of this whole season is about seeking and searching for our own version of excellence. And, you know, Rosie, who we recorded with for our last episode, talked about this idea of like showing up and faking it till you make it, right? And and sometimes you know what you're supposed to be doing, but you might not have those skills yet. But if you can show up with these other characteristics like you've been describing of, you know, really looking out for others, growing a team that's not only going to support themselves, but support each other and to help you to work towards your goal and finding what's going to nurture and strengthen their skill set while, you know, really looking forward to the future instead of just exactly where you are. There's something to be said about being mindful and being present, but then also in a lot of the endeavors that you've taken on and you've described, it's it's a lot of forward thinking of how can we work to improve? And it's, you know, it's it's been to your benefit, I would imagine, but it wasn't intended that way. It doesn't sound like it wasn't like, I need to do better. It's like, how can I help this organization, this division, these people right. to improve? That's right. And I think that's just a beautiful thing. And, you know, going back to this idea of faking it till you make it, you know, even before our first episode of the season, Jelani, who's a, a Broadway actor, 
was talking about when he auditions. He's got these skills. He's got these things that he's offering. But it comes down to what you said. It's like the right place, the right time, the right role. But you're also, you know, showcasing a part of yourself. It's not just your skills. It's Mm. also what you bring to the opportunity or the situation. That part of you is really what brings everything together. And I think in Jerry and I's work, we really help people to see that side of them that sometimes they lose sight of or maybe they haven't recognized yet. And and forming that identity and having the opportunity to take risks, I think is all part of that process. Well, speaking of taking risks, um, I can tell a little bit of a story about a really huge risk. Yeah, please. That paid off. And I think, um, but there's, there's a little bit of a, formula here mm. and uh so so you mentioned at the outset i'm ceo of a company called like minds this is my i think it's my ninth ceo role so i've been doing this a pretty long time but but i i'm not a career biotech guy like minds is a biotech related company but but how i got into it was kind of by totally by chance and and again it's the sort of thing that's was actually at the time most people thought it was a really scary movie, but, but maybe I was just too dumb to realize how scary it was. But um, somebody really important to me, who was a woman we refer to as our Aunt Katie, uh, in, in the mid-90s developed a tremor disorder that got worse and worse and worse to the point that she could barely write and couldn't really hold a cup of coffee. And... Um, and it was kind of sad to see all this happen. And, and in 2000, she was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And um, and when I went to visit, it was sad. And what she was doing was crushing up her pills and sprinkling the powder into, into her drink, into her juice. And I asked why. And she said, well, if I take the whole pill, I can't stop moving. Mm. If I don't take the pill, I can't move. And so this was her way of, of titrating the medicine over the course of the day and whatnot. But that, of course, didn't work at night. It was a bit of a problem. And uh, it was sad to see. And I said, well, I said, I think we need to have a better answer than this. And um, I had no idea what I was signing up for. <clears throat> and this coming from the guy that was a not even close to being successful, Bristol Myers, mm. a couple of decades before. But it was personal. And I thought, well, how can we solve the problem? And, and the idea was to provide a drug, to make a drug product that could effectively keep her drug levels at the right level all day long and all night long, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That was the challenge. <laughs> and, of course, I had made a promise that I would do this. And uh, so I did a little research and I found a company in Richmond, Virginia, of all places, mm. would not have been the first place I would have thought about. And there were three scientists there who were brilliant and they had a molecule that seemed like it could be good for treating Parkinson's disease. It also seemed like a molecule that could be formulated to be delivered through a patch using a transdermal patch and then the drug would be absorbed through the skin over the course of the day. Mm -hmm. But there were some problems. Number one, the company was not in a biotech hub, so it was difficult to get money there. Number two, they were broke, so they were on the brink of bankruptcy. Number three, they didn't have much. They only had two years left on their patents, which makes it very difficult to finance in in the venture world. So those are kind of the things you don't want. I didn't care. So I'm going to go back to the kid that ripped out the kitchen and I suppose, Mm -hmm. but I didn't care. This was a personal battle for me, and I went to visit the company, and I talked with the scientists and the board, and they were so desperate that they said, well, do you want to be the CEO of this thing? And I said, sure. (laughs) So that's the epitome of desperation because I had never done biotech, and, and, you know, 90% of biotech projects fail. And well, it so, also sounds like it came full circle, right? Going back to that inner chemist of yourself when you were younger and it, wanting to be a part <laughs> of the process. Yeah. It does, it does. Yeah. And so so what was kind of funny was I thought, well, now how am I going to succeed at this? And uh, so, poof, be careful what you wish for. And so mm-hmm. in the first quarter of 2001, I took over as the CEO of the company and I thought there's got to be a formula. 
and so I'm going to go back to my training as an analytical chemist, we'll create a formula. So what do you have to have? You have to have the best and brightest people. They have to be personally motivated to do what you want to do. They have to have access, in my opinion, to unlimited capital, and they have to have access to the best and brightest brains for advice. And if you could, if you could put all that together, it would work. And uh, so that was my plan. <laughs> and, uh, and I read that a guy named Paul Gringard had won the Nobel Prize for his work in Parkinson's disease, and he was in New York, and he had an office on the ninth floor of the Rockefeller um, in the city. So I went to New York and, and unannounced, I went to the Rockefeller University, went to the ninth floor, showed up at his office with one of the scientists from the company, and we got to talking. And by the end of that discussion, he agreed to become the brain science advisor. Wow. So now we have this Nobel Prize winner uh, as an advisor to the science team. <laughs> and I asked this guy, Gringard, I said, so Paul, who's the best drug developer you know? Because I, what do I know about it? Well, Sir James Black. Jim Black is the Nobel laureate for developing beta blockers, one of the biggest drugs of all time. And I, do you know him? I sure do. I said, can you get him on the phone? Sure. So he got Jim Black on the phone. Mm. And I got to talking to Jim, and he was in London. I said, if I fly to London, would you spend some time with me? And he agreed. And so I jumped on a plane, I flew to London, I spent the day with Jim Black, and sure enough, he agreed to be my my drug development advisor so that he could help the science team um, speak a whole different language than I spoke, certainly. And then there's a scientist at MIT who's absolutely brilliant, who I knew, named Bob Langer, who's one of the best scientists in the world, period. He is the most patented scientist of all time, so he knows all about patent development, and mm -hmm. he certainly is one of the best scientists in the world at drug delivery. And so I went to talk to Bob, and I asked if he would you know, help a little bit and give some advice, and he said, sure. So, so what, what we wound up doing was put together this incredible advisory team Dream team. It, it really was a dream mm -hmm. team. And, and, and so the next issue was money. Like, how are you going to pay for this thing? Because raising money for something like this is almost impossible when you only have two years left on the patents, no matter how clever you think you are about building out a patent estate. And I thought, well, how am I going to raise the money? And when I had been hired as the CEO of the company had and then banker whose job was to go raise five to eight million dollars. And what I was told was that wouldn't be enough money, that we had to have more money than that. So I thought, well, I have to, I have to get more money than this. How am I going to do this? And uh, I thought, well, what if I just talk to investors who have a personal interest in this space? And what I wound up doing was I, I went down the list of all these venture funds and I got to talking to the venture funds and, and I decided I would only talk to the funds or I'd primarily talk to the funds who were being run by someone whose family had been affected by Parkinson's and who, who cared about more than just making more money, who actually took an interest in what I was doing, mm -hmm. what we were trying to do, and that I knew if I picked up the phone and called, they'd answer. And um, lo and behold, I was supposed to raise five to eight million dollars, and on the third quarter of two thousand one, I closed on forty-five million dollars. Wow! And we have twelve employees, which meant that there was never a question about money. Wow! So whatever experiment they wanted to do, we had the capital to do it. We didn't have to go stop everything and go find the money. The money was there. So the the ingredients were best and brightest players doing the the work, which. Mm -hmm. That these guys were unbelievable, unbelievable advisors, fantastic. We had a very good board of directors, was absolutely fantastic. We had investors, we had plenty of money, but it came from investors who had a personal interest. And so if we ever needed to make a network connection or something, we could pick up the phone and get the help. It was unbelievable. And and when everybody said we'd fail, we did ultimately, we, we did succeed. We sold the company and the products on the market today. And it treats millions of people around the world for Parkinson's and restless legs. Absolutely incredible. Wow. Those, uh, those cabinets really came together nicely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess they did. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah, that really happened. 
that's unbelievable. It's like the same exact thing you did when you were a kid. Like, let's yeah. just see what's possible and yeah. make it happen. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have to also add that on top of these incredible accomplishments that not only help to move your professional career in a wonderful direction <laughs> to be able to help so many others that you are working with and then also who benefit from a drug like this. But also you raised a family that was yeah. quite substantial. It wasn't just like you had one child. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. We, <laughs> so, so the, uh, so, yeah, so because I was interested in the Parkinson's space, I yeah. had a little humor to this. Um, you know, I, I, as soon as I got involved in this, I, Michael J. Fox, of course, is a huge name in this, and he was mm -hmm. absolutely determined to make a difference in this space. And and I was, uh, I really, really, really enjoyed connecting with him in New York. I wound up doing some fundraisers, and he ultimately... Um, convinced me to do some fundraisers with some other people. And one of them was with a guy named Robin Williams. And uh, Robin had Parkinson's disease. And uh, as you know, later uh, wound up with Louis Body Dementia. But we, we did a fundraiser and uh, together with the first one that we did anyway. And so now to your point about my family. So mm -hmm. the first time I met him, I had no idea what to expect, but I knew a couple things. I knew I knew, number one, that I had to go first. There's no way in the world you can go on stage after Robin Williams. This is not going to happen. No, so, thank you. No, so I take the bathroom breaks then. So, so we sat in a little room for about a half an hour. We got to talking about things. And uh, he asked questions about my background, my experience, my family. And, mm. and then, of course, the, the show started and I went out and I did my boring talk. And then I was done. And when I got finished with it, he uh, he walked out and he... He said, now he said, I'd like to have an extra special round of applause for my co-host this evening. He said, look at this guy. He said, does he look very special to you? He does not look special to me. He said, but he's married to this absolutely beautiful, wonderful mm. woman. And he said, and the two of them had six kids in seven and a half years. And he said, what we want to know <laughs> is, didn't you people have a TV? And I said, yes, we did. <laughs> he said, we just want to know what you were watching on that TV is what we want to know. <laughs> anyway, it was, it was oh, this, my first story. experience with Robin Williams. But yeah, we yeah. have, my wife works for one of the world's most incredible brain scientists at MIT, mm -hmm. Anne Grabeel. And uh, it runs in the family, and, and uh, two of our two of our kids were nurses at Lunder Seven, the neuro unit at Mass General Hospital. So we're we're pretty interested in the space. But yep, six kids, thirty thirty one to twenty four. So. And you're one of the most dedicated, present fathers that I've ever met, and I really appreciate that very I much. About I, you. I do try. Yeah, I'm great kids. Well. For your children, who hopefully will be listening, he talks about you all all the time. <laughs> it's wonderful to get to know you through yeah. your dad. So that's yeah. a wonderful thing. Yeah, thanks. So did you learn your dad jokes from Robin Williams? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, he was. You know what? I don't know how this guy did it. I I don't know. He was so quick and so fast. So and, witty. Uh, yeah, I know. It takes me forever to figure these things out. Well, you did promise at least one before we finish our episode. So yeah, I could. I could. Uh, well, I, I like to do the ones that I make up myself as opposed to the ones online, because if I do jokes that are online, my kids can find them. <laughs> so I've learned that's not the thing to do. So so let me let me ask you, Alexis. Sure. Um, have you ever heard about the, the nursery rhyme about Mary had a little <laughs> lamb? No. You haven't? Um, sounds familiar, vaguely. Yeah. So, you, well, Mary had a little lamb. Its fleece was white as snow. Snow, yeah. That's right. And oh, every, yeah, there it and, is. Yes, right. And everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. That's right. And do you know where they went? Where did they go? They went to watch YouTube videos. <laughs> 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 it's just, uh, I'm so sorry. Uh, That's good. Uh, I wasn't expecting uh, that. <laughs> no, I know. I know. It's. Um, well, this is a taste of what Peter's like to have in the office. He's such a great presence. And to, to wrap it around full circle, you know, the people who uh, interact with you at the office space who are not even part of your company, they're just around. You know, your presence is wonderful to have around. We appreciate mm -hmm. you. And I think going back to what we said about 
you know, the work that you did and how much energy and effort and focus you put into everything, that piece of, of joy in this refreshing aura that you bring into every day, I think is really such a beautiful thing and an inspiration for so many, certainly an inspiration for us because sometimes days get busy and heavy and stuff comes up and to share a piece of candy or mm. your wife's delicious baklava yeah, <laughs> or, or a joke in passing, I think sometimes makes all the difference and Ollie helps too because he's always around. Not a pleasure. Thank you. Well, we're so happy to have you here today and uh, to be part of this Reconnected podcast. And we know for sure that, you know, elements of your stories will inspire and uh, be a support to other people. Well, thank you. Thank you both very much. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for tuning in to the Reconnected podcast. Please remember that this is a podcast intended to educate and share ideas but it is not a substitute for professional care that may be beneficial to you at different points of your life. If you are in need of support, please contact your primary care physician, local hospital, educational institution, or support staff at your place of employment to seek out referrals for what may be most helpful for you. Ideas shared here have been shaped by many years of training, incredible mentors, research, theory, evidence-based practices, and our work with individuals over the years but it's not intended to represent opinions of those we work with or who we are affiliated with. The Reconnected podcast is hosted by siblings Alexis Reed and Dr. Gerald Reed. Original music is written and recorded by Gerald Reed. Editing and recording was done by Cybersound Studios. If you want to follow along on this journey with us, the Reconnected podcast will be releasing new episodes every two weeks each season. So please subscribe for updates and notifications. Feel free to also follow us on Instagram at Read Connected Podcast. That's Read Connect Ed Podcast and Twitter at Read Connect Ed. We are grateful for you joining us and look forward to future episodes. In the meanwhile, be curious, be open, and be well. Mm-hmm.